It's good to be with you again this morning. One of the things that uh, I'm convinced of, and I think we're convinced of here, is that uh, the attraction of this church, and particularly this time in the Word, is not me. I'm not a super impressive speaker. I'm not going to make my money motivational speaking if this doesn't work out. Uh, I'm not the coolest guy in the room by any means. Uh, I've learned that one the hard way uh, growing up. But, uh, But what we are convinced of is that there is power in God's word. And so what we do as a church, our habit at least, is to dig into God's Word, work through a book of the Bible. So it's not one person picking and choosing what we're going to talk about. We're going to let God set the agenda. We dig in and we hear what God has said. And we found, as we've been doing this together, that when we really understand what God has said, there is power in His Word as His Holy Spirit works amongst us. So, with that in mind, we're continuing in our series in Matthew. And if you would open up to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 38, which if you're using the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 814. I encourage all of you to open there. And uh, because we believe it is God's word, as we hear it read, we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. So would you join me? Matthew 9:18-38 While Jesus was saying these things to them behold a ruler came in and knelt before him saying My daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like like this seen in Israel. The Pharisees said, 
He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Let's be seated as we pray. God, I know I need you this morning, every morning, particularly this morning as I stand up here, try to explain what you have said. I pray, Father, that your spirit would give me strength, but use these words that we've just read and and our time together in them to quicken all of our hearts. We are asking, Lord, for you to work amongst us in a powerful way, in a way that only your word and your spirit can do. Grip us as you would have us understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our series, as we've been working through it, through the book of Matthew, has a title. And the title for the series is Foundations for a Church on mission. Now, if you remember back to when we first started the series, that, that, that title is taken from various elements of the, the Gospel of Matthew, but particularly the very end, the way Matthew's Gospel ends. Matthew's Gospel ends with Jesus sending out his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So you have uh, Matthew writes to this little beleaguered church. And he's calling on them saying, here's some things you need to understand if you're going to go out. But what's interesting is Matthew's strategy, right? So he wants this little church to become bold for the gospel and to go out and to make disciples. But he doesn't write a book that's this evangelistic strategy, 12 steps to winning your neighbor for Christ. Or, you know, here's the program your church needs. And if your church just adopts this program... You'll increase attendance by 40%. What he does is he presents Jesus, the Christ. So the first four chapters, the first main unit of Matthew, he's introducing this Jesus as the one who comes and fulfills The Old Testament, particularly those strands he draws out from the Old Testament that show that God's heart is for the nations and for broken sinners and how this Jesus comes in that stream to fulfill all of that and to take on the devil and stare him down. Once Jesus has been introduced to us in that way, then we get to the unit we're in right now, which runs from chapter five to the end of chapter nine. And this This unit is about Jesus' authority. So chapters 5 through 7, he teaches as one who has authority. And chapters 8 and 9, he heals with authority. 
And as we saw in chapters 5 through 7, he, he, in that Sermon on the Mount, he, he lays out these ethics of the kingdom, how people who belong to his kingdom are to behave. And it's this beautiful picture of people who are broken over their sin and humble and contrite and mourn over the brokenness of this world and trust him and, and, and live in a righteous way, not to perform for man and be man pleasers, but because they love God and are seeking him. It's not an external righteousness, it's an internal righteousness. And Jesus draws attention when you live like this. It's this beautiful light shining for all to see. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we've been seeing in this, in this part how, how Matthew links together these sets of three stories. Three sets of three stories. So three stories that show that God's gospel, that Jesus' mission is for all people. People that in that society would have been thought fringe and not worthwhile. That's who Jesus prioritizes the first three stories. The second three stories, we see Jesus' authority over all things, over nature, over demons, and even the authority to forgive sins, which is proven as he heals the paralytic. And we see in, 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 the, in the little uh, interludes that kind of break up the three sets of three stories, what God's looking for in a follower, somebody who understands their brokenness and looks to him and follows him. And so today we get to our final set of three stories. What I want to say to you is as we look at these last three stories, I think what we're going to see is the picture of Jesus, an understanding of Jesus that will compel us to be people on mission. It sheds light on the heart of Jesus. It sheds light on who it is that come to him. So let's dig in. The first story we see in 9:18 to 26 describes a man whose daughter has died in Laura Hillenbrand's book Sea Biscuit she tells the story of a man named Charles Howard who hit the automobile market when it was just taking off and made a mess of money. He had all that he could have. And then, in a tragic accident, his son dies. And it breaks him. He can't bear it. He has everything. The death of his son, he can't bear I'm not the crying type. It's just not something I do that often. But sometimes I have to stop myself from thinking about what would happen if one of my children died. Because that's something that I feel deeply. It gets me emotional. And I know there are some here who have lost a child. And known the pain that this ruler is feeling. 
So we know it's a Jewish man. He's a ruler. Other Gospels tell us that he's a synagogue ruler. But he is broken hearted. Because his daughter is dead. Now to set the scene a little bit. Of course stepping back. Jesus is in a house filled with tax collectors and sinners. So people that the Pharisees would have looked down upon, they didn't think were worthwhile. In fact, any kind of Jewish society more or less looked down on these people. Jesus is in their midst, and the Pharisees are sitting, clucking their tongues at him, saying, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Right? And Jesus has just been engaging with these Pharisees, and he's called them, uh, he's compared them to apostate Israel from the time of Hosea's day, which was not a compliment. And then he says, your approach to religion is taking an unshrunk cloth and putting it on a a shrunk cloth and you're ruining everything, which is not a compliment. And so there's this kind of tension. And into the room walks a Jewish synagogue ruler. Now the Pharisees probably perked up a little bit. Reinforcements. Here's one of us, right? A religious elite. And he's here to wave his finger at Jesus and look down his nose at his actions. Imagine the shock on their faces when this ruler goes to Jesus, probably with tears in his eyes, and kneels down and tells him, my daughter's just died. And then, in faith, In this, Jesus says, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Imagine what the Jewish ruler had to do in order to walk through that. He had to overcome these societal pressures on him, the religious pressures, his peers and what they would have thought of him. But he is a man who is desperate The death of his daughter has struck his heart and he knows there's one that he can go to. And he goes to him with confident faith and says, you can heal her. And Jesus gets up with this synagogue ruler and goes. Remember in chapter 8, verse 18, a scribe comes and says, I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus has some words that try and correct his perspective. But not so with this this man who a similar kind of... uh, Great stature in the community, but he comes with humble, childlike, desperate faith. I need you. I need you. And Jesus follows him. But then Matthew brings our attention to another figure a woman. A woman who, from her womb, has been bleeding for 12 years. You can imagine that her life was a fairly normal, happy life. Things were going well for her. Perhaps she'd already been married. We don't know. And then, through no fault of her own, a true victim of circumstances, she develops this medical issue. And it's a serious medical issue, particularly in that day when the Levitical Code would have said that because of her flow of blood, she would be unclean and perpetually unclean. So that meant she was cut off from the religious observances of the synagogue. 
She was cut off from associating with her her friends and her peers. Not to mention the serious inconvenience of having blood flowing from you regularly. Her life had been turned upside down. And it appears that she's not somebody who just kind of became bitter and, you know, put up her feet and started watching soaps. No, she, she was still trying to do things to try and address this. Other Gospels says she spent all her money going to doctors trying to get this fixed. I think, I think many of us can relate to her. Something happens that, that we didn't have control of that turns our world upside down. And all of a sudden, all our social interactions have to change because of that. All that, even, even the way we think of ourselves religiously is altered. And now we have this heavy burden on us. Makes me think of one of the most dear women I've known named B. Gorton. Uh, she was, uh, I, I think it was a professor of kinesiology at Wheaton College. And she was traveling abroad. And while she was abroad, she contracted some sort of parasite that even to this day, the doctors have not been able to figure out what it was. This was years ago. Young, athletic, vibrant, full of energy. And it completely shut her down. Intense fatigue, debilitating headaches where she can't even be in the light because of the pain. And it changed her whole world. Cut off from everything except for her closest friends. She couldn't go to church. She couldn't get out. She was a shut-in. That's this woman's situation. Well, it's interesting because Jesus is, is following this synagogue ruler. The Pharisees are going, hmm, what's this man? What, what's going on here? And she, with that same desperate faith, cuts through the crowd, violates Levitical etiquette, and reaches out saying, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she reaches out and touches. Immediately healed. But there's something about Jesus that is so captivating, so compelling so unlike, especially if you look back in that day, the, the heroes of that day. Here's Jesus who's walking along with this great ruler and a woman who the Pharisees would have looked down upon. Who wouldn't, that unclean, bleeding woman, reaches out and touches him. And what does he do? He stops. And he turns. It's a man named Ken Taylor who translated the Living Bible and founded Tyndale House Publishers. And when I heard stories about him, stories I heard were at Tyndale House Publishers, he knew everybody's name, including the lady who worked for Service Master and cleaned the bathrooms. He knew her name. Jesus takes Ken Taylor and he goes one step further. It's like he's with the CEO of the company who's just summoned him to the most important business meeting he could be at. And they're heading to the business meeting. And then cleaning lady who speaks 
in faltering English says, uh, excuse me, Jesus, can I have a word with you? And instead of pressing on to the business meeting, he stops and he addresses her and says, what's going on? Let's get to the heart of it. And she is healed. He says to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Much was different, right, between this Jewish ruler and this bleeding woman and their social standing. But there was something that was very similar. They both had that desperate, humble faith that said, I need you, and they came to Jesus with that faith. And he responds and he heals this woman. And only after he's healed does he go in to the ruler's house. And the ruler's house, in those days, you would hire professional mourners, including flautists. And I'm impressed that I know that word. Um, and he hires, they, they would be hired and they would be professional mourners. And yet there would also be just that deep, deep agony of genuine mourning going on. And Jesus says, go away. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying the physicians who have visited her have gotten the wrong diagnosis and they're about to bury her alive. He's saying something about the fact that he is going to do a miracle in their midst and raise her up. And they get that. The crowd gets that, which is why they mock him. Yeah, this two-bit carpenter from Nazareth is going to come here and this girl who's been pronounced dead by the utmost or the highest authorities, he's going to go and do something to raise her life. Uh Uh-huh, right. They laugh him to scorn. But the Jewish ruler, he has faith. And so the room is cleared and Jesus comes and takes her limp, dead hand into the warmth of his hand. She arises alive. Jesus even has authority over death. Which should come as no surprise to us who have learned that he has authority to forgive sins. And Matthew tells us the report of this went through all that district. Then Matthew turns our attention to another duo. These more appropriately paired because both of them are blind. Now, the gospel writers like to tell us about people who are blind who are healed. Jesus did all sorts of miracles, but there's a disproportionate representation of those who are blind. And I think that's because throughout the Old and New Testaments, blindness is a metaphor for our spiritual condition. So, of course, you know John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor who wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And we all relate so powerfully, we who are in Christ and have been redeemed, relate so powerfully to that. And so here are these two men who cannot see. And yet, I think Matthew is showing us that they see so clearly. Particularly, they see two things so clearly. They see who Jesus is so clearly. 
and they see what their plea must be so clearly. You see that in what they call out. Son of David! Son of David! They say. That was a title freighted with messianic expectations, especially in that day. No doubt they thought about that coming age of a new David, a son of David who would rule, and the different prophecies that were made about such a figure. Things like from Isaiah 35 where it says the eyes of the blind would be opened. And they see this figure and he's doing these incredible things with such authority. And they say this must be the man, this must be the son of David. Of course, think about the Pharisees, right? The bridegroom's in their midst, and they're thumbing their nose at him. They're questioning everything he does. They're looking at him with distrust. But not these men who are blind. The blind men see. Son of David. And what is their plea? Have mercy on us. Notice they don't say, Son of David, because of our goodness, because we've been devout and faithful, heal us. It's just the simple plea. I need you. I need your mercy. Have mercy on us. You know, there are those who grow up kind of in well-bred religious homes. Or or maybe, more generally speaking, well-bred moral homes. A sense of, I've got it together. I'm a pretty healthy person. And it's, it's good and proper that I come to God. And so that's one thing I'll do. Because that's what good people like me do. We go to church. That's not the posture we come to God with. Come to God. Like the ruler with our knees bowed saying, have mercy. The beggar does not plead his good situation when he is asking for alms. Neither does the sinner plead his spiritual health when asking for God's mercy. In fact, I would say that this one characteristic defines Christianity over and against pretty much every other major religion that's out there. You see, other religions understand, they they can't deny the fact that the human heart, every human has sin and does what is wicked at times. And so everybody needs some sort of purifying or some help from the divine. But you must merit that. You must do enough good where God will take notice and say, oh, you are one of the good ones. Okay, therefore, I will mete out my mercy upon you. And Christianity has just the opposite message. 
You take your good works and you pile them as high as you can get them. The most virtuous person in the world you can think of can get so high and it is not high enough because our sin is deeply rooted. And we don't plead our goodness. We plead our need. We don't receive God's mercy because we've been so good. We receive it and we approach Him saying, I have nothing to bring but my desperate need for you. And it's because of His love and His grace, nothing about myself, that He's able in Christ to forgive. The blind men see it. Oh, son of David, have mercy on us. The Pharisees with their stuffed religious shirts and their well-bred morals and their expertise in all things biblical can't see it. It's no wonder that eight times in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus calls the Pharisees blind. They're not like the Jewish ruler who knew his desperate state and knew only Jesus could help. You mentioned this. Jesus is this captivating figure. And I I love this. You know, he's walking along the road and these two blind men are calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus got these Pharisees in tow. No doubt this would be a great opportunity to just kind of give them a one-up and say, okay, everybody gather around, gather around. I'm going to show you something just to show these Pharisees for the fools they are and to let you guys all know I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. Here I am. Everybody give me a round of applause. All right, come on up here. Be healed. Boom, they're done. Flashing. What does he do? He goes into the house. Right? Now we're in private. And he asked them a question in private. Do you believe? They say, yes, Lord. He touches them. They're healed. Now they're going to go out of the house. And he says, shh. Don't tell anybody. We can get into all sorts of explanations for that. But at at the very least, he's showing them that that miracle isn't about anything that he's showing everybody else. It's about the heart that he has for these two men who could not see. A heart of compassion and love for those who are needy. Of course, they don't obey. They go out and we are told in verse 31, they spread his fame through all that district. So, Jesus' reputation grows. The last story Matthew tells is a less personal story. There's a man who has a demon, and as a result, he cannot speak. He's brought to Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon, and he's able to speak. But the attention that Matthew brings us, or where the attention is in this, in this third story, is, is in the responses to Jesus. So you see in verse 33, the crowds marvel 
Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But what do the Pharisees say there in verse 34? He casts out demons by the prince of demons. They attribute his work to demonic forces. Again, put this story right after the healing of the blind men who could see. Now we have the Pharisees who have physical eyes but cannot see what is in their midst. The Jewish ruler could see. His daughter's death had helped him to see. The bleeding woman could see. Her desperate state had helped her to see. The two blind men could see. Their broken eyes had helped them to see. But these Pharisees, so content in their own righteousness, could not see. few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had said to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These, these Pharisees needed to learn mercy. They didn't know mercy because they didn't see they needed mercy. See how those things go together? They need to learn mercy. And they didn't think they needed mercy. And that's why they were blind. Let me just draw two implications here. Very brief. One sentence each. But I think very important. One. A so-called Christian. Who does not grasp his own desperate state. has more in common with the Pharisees than with Christ. And two, the good moral people might seem to have it all together. But if they do not see their need for Christ, they are actually of all people the most blind. So this is what this is what Matthew wants us to see. This is the Jesus he puts before us. These are the, the truths that he knew firsthand that he comes and puts on display for us so that we would be people who are motivated to live on mission because we have been gripped by this Jesus. And he ends this this second section of his gospel with with this paragraph in 935 through 38. Four verses. The first verse is the bookend verse, right? Remember in chapter 423, that exact same, almost exact same verse is there to start the section. And that's how you know this is one unit because it starts and ends the same way. And then verse 36. How does he end this section on the authority of Jesus? He says, when he saw the crowds, He had compassion for them 
That word compassion talks about being deeply moved in your gut, in your bowels. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The motivation for mission is compassion. He looks out on the people and he sees they're hurt. They're beat down. They need a hero, a shepherd. His heart goes out to them. Most of you know that our family has received the blessing of adoption. We've been able to adopt two of our children. Before I married Karen, I knew that I wanted to adopt. And part of that was because I would see children who are at risk, in at-risk situations. My heart would just be deeply moved. I'd go out to them and I'd want to be their dad. I knew that's something that I wanted to do. Jesus looks upon us in our needy state. And he has compassion. He wants to be our shepherd. What we'll see next week is that Jesus then sends out disciples. So this is a this is a sending section where we're paving the way. It's a hinge. This is a hinge that Matthew puts from this authority to the sending. And so here, when he's talking about his own compassion, I think he's teaching us what our motivations should be. Foundations for a church on mission. Certainly, our goal in making the gospel known isn't some sort of condescension like, I've got it right and you've got it wrong and I've come here to clarify all your errors so that you can be like me. That's not our tone, right? It's compassion. But I think, at least for me, messed up enough sinner enough to know that that's not what I need to be doing. You know, I don't need to be telling everyone I've got it all right. But sometimes I look at people and I think they got they got a nice life. Like they seem to be decent people. They're raising their kids pretty well. They're contributing members of society. They are involved in a civic organization. Do they really need my gospel or God's gospel? Well, perhaps some of them don't. Perhaps some of them are like the Pharisees. They have their well-manicured lawns that match their well-manicured moral lives. Although they need the gospel too. But I think the real issue is that many of us haven't taken the time to get to know people at a deep level. Because when you can see with the eyes of Christ and you start to actually love people and love your neighbor and love your coworker and love your family member, you see that there's great hurt and pain. That they're harassed and helpless just like you are apart from Christ like I am. Yeah, they might be trying 
to, to fit the mold and, and have their well-manicured lawn and their well-manicured life. But even that in itself is part of what's suffocating and overwhelming to them. And we come to them with our arm around them, shoulder to shoulder, as people who also need God's grace and show them that there is a good shepherd and we bring them to a Jesus that Matthew has just presented to us who will stop when he's walking with the ruler to take time for the bleeding woman. Who'll take the two blind men in behind closed doors to say, I have compassion for you. I'm healing you for you and not for the crowd. This is the Jesus we take him to. A Jesus who can deal with sin because of what he did on the cross. It's a heart of compassion that motivates us on mission. Because people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in verses 37 and 38, he tells us the means by which we are to do our mission. So if verse 36 is the, is the motivation, verse 37 and 38 are the means. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. The need is for laborers. We need people to actually go and make this gospel known. And as your heart enlarges to have Jesus' heart and has that heart of compassion, and you see people helped or helpless and hurting and harassed, you desire not only yourself to be one of those laborers, but more and more people to just go and reach out to people and love them and share with them the good news of what Christ offers. So part of the means is laborers, people actually... To go out and serve as representatives of Christ. But it's interesting that that's not exactly what Jesus says. He doesn't say the fields are white unto harvest or the harvest is plentiful. Therefore, recruit as many people as you can to get out there and and mobilize people to get out there and make the gospel known. That just might be a little bit too man-dependent and man-centered. Because there is a Lord of the harvest. And so as much as, yes, we do need laborers and we need to be people who are active in this, what Jesus says is not to get doing, but to get praying. Not to put boots on the ground, but put knees on the ground. And ask the one who is the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. How are we doing? How are we doing? How am I doing? Is this something that I am pleading with the Lord about? Are we as a church pleading with the Lord about this? If God is going to Work If the Lord of the harvest is going to work, he has chosen to work through the prayers of his people to mobilize his church to bring the good news of Christ. You know, I can't 
I could probably, if I worked really hard, guilt you into feeling like, oh, I better go pray. I need to pray. I gotta, I'm going to set aside five minutes every day to pray. So I feel really bad if I don't. But Matthew says, no, look at Jesus. Get to know Jesus. And his heart of compassion. His power. And what he's about. See the world through his eyes. You'll start to see the harvest plentiful. And you will drop to your knees in prayer. Foundations for a church on mission is Matthew's gospel. He does it by letting us see Christ rightly. And that will fuel not only our our right motivations of compassion, but our right means of asking the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is so good. And we are harassed and helpless. And we look at a world that is harassed and helpless and sees their need. Help us to have that heart of compassion like Christ did. For all peoples. Really loving those around us. And God... I pray that you, the Lord of the harvest, would raise up even from this church. Even, I pray in faith, from this sermon, laborers. Maybe just in the next week. Raise us up to work like Christ and be his representatives. And cause us to be a people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can stand and join with us. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Kind of along the same theme, so...